Welcome to Someday is Here, a podcast for Asian American women on leadership and culture. I'm your host, Vivian Mabuni. This podcast has been created to carve out a space for Asian American women to explore and validate living in both Eastern and Western worlds. Each week, we will celebrate our heritage and highlight Asian American history. My guests and I will explore our various Asian American journeys, both the parts that we are proud of and the parts that have brought pain. We'll discuss practical tips on leadership and our favorite comfort foods, of course. This is a place and a space to bring words and understanding to our shared experience living biculturally. I am so glad you're listening and look forward to your feedback. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome back to Someday Is Here. You'll be hearing in the next few episodes our continued uh, transition to the new name, Someday Is Here. And, you know, I was just talking with my daughter today and she was telling me, you know what, Mom, I really like the new name. And I have to agree with her 100%. So, Someday Is Here. Boy, we are already starting to talk through some of the guests we'll be having in season two, and there's other exciting information that I'll be sharing with you about what's coming in 2020. And we are just thrilled, our whole team. So Someday is here. And this week's guest, she is fabulous. Her name is Dorcas Chang Tozen, and she is an award-winning writer. Her writings appeared in the Wall Street Journal. She is brilliant. You know, both her undergrad and graduate degrees were from Stanford. But she is kind and humble and grounded and smart, and she's just a combination of all the best things. I felt like our conversation could have gone on and on. And in fact, I realized that I even forgot to ask her what her favorite comfort food was. So I had to text her later, and she said, you know, I have many. Not sure which one to pick, but she loves ramen. She loves salted fish and chicken fried rice. So what's not to love about those foods as my mouth is watering? Dorcas is the author of Start, Love, Repeat, and she gets to share uh, about the book during our interview. And I really appreciated her willingness to go there and share her experience uh, walking through depression and some of the things that she learned and how she really walked in healing in that process. And I, I appreciated especially too how Dorcas really brought a world perspective in having lived in Hong Kong and China and uh, Kenya and her uh, view on uh, the very, very wealthy as well as the very, very poor and how all of us really just want to be seen and seen for who we really are. So as I am interviewing Dorcas, she is Chinese American, just like I am. So I thought I would share for this week's Did You Know about the Chinese Exclusion Act. I would encourage you to Google it to get more information. But basically, in 1882, the country's first immigration law was passed that singled out an immigrant group for large scale exclusion based on race in 1882. The Chinese were excluded from um, immigrating to the United States, and honestly, the comprehensive immigration reform did not occur in the United States until 1965. So when you wonder why there aren't more Chinese American representatives in politics or in other places, the Chinese, as you know, have been here since the 1800s, building the railroad and uh, part of the gold rush. And yet, uh, the, the exclusion of Chinese um, has really limited the ability for the Chinese to um, grow and settle um, in the same way as their European counterparts. So the Chinese Exclusion Act, um, my parents did not come to the United States until that final immigration reform in the 60s. So that's, um, you know, just within many of our lifetimes. That's this week's Did You Know. 
So I can't wait for you to listen to this week's episode. Again, uh, please continue to share these episodes with your friends and subscribe, review, and rate the shows. Um, That really helps get the word out to others as well. So we're so excited that you're here. Enjoy this week's show. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Someday is Here. And I'm excited to introduce to you my guest this week, Dorcas Chang Tozen. She is brilliant and kind and grounded. And we have kind of known of each other for several years. But Dorcas, I'm so glad you're on this episode. I can't wait to have our conversation. I thought maybe you could introduce yourself and maybe how we kind of know each other. Sure. Yeah. I think we were introduced by a mutual friend, if I remember correctly, a few years back. And I was just starting in my writing journey at that time. So I had worked in the nonprofit sector for about a decade and then made this sharp left turn to, hey, I think I want to be a writer. And you were one of the first people that I connected with in terms of, you know, how do I do this? How do I navigate this publishing world? And I think especially as one Asian American woman connecting with another one, that was particularly meaningful for me because I didn't, I didn't know how that would work, you know, how my um, ethnic background might, might impact my ability to get published or to get connected with um, publications. So, um, so I think we, we had an initial conversation a few years back and then have yeah. kept in touch ever since. It's been so fun. Well, I, I remember that first phone call and I, I remember very distinctly, I was, I was pushing a big grocery cart in Costco. So that was like my, so I remember having the conversation with you and then it was such an engaging conversation. I remember pulling the cart over to the side by a stack of things so that we could finish our conversation because it was just so good. I didn't want, I wanted my full attention. Um, And I just was immediately drawn to your heart and your humility because my goodness, you've had your degrees in, you know, graduate degrees, even Stanford and Berkeley. It just, you know, obviously in the introduction, we'll, we'll get more into that. But in it, I've just been so encouraged by how you and your husband have really lived out um, a life that is about the greater good of people. Um, it's been really uh, inspiring. I know you just moved back from spending time again in, was it, you went twice to Kenya, is that correct? Yes, that's right. So this international experience, all of that, it's just, I'm just so, so impressed with who you are. Well, thank you. Although um, I would say I haven't always done it very happily every single moment because <laughs> it, it's been extraordinarily challenging. Um, mm. And so we've done, my husband and I have been married for 14 years and we have done three stints overseas during the course of that time, almost half of our marriage or at least a third of it. Um, and it, yeah, it's been extraordinarily stretching and mm. I have learned so much <laughs> about myself mostly. I feel like mostly the not so great things about myself. That's kind of what putting, um, going into unfamiliar places does. I think it, it brings out some of our um, our greatest challenges and idiosyncrasies and forces us to reckon with them. Um, but in the end, it's a very good thing. Yeah. Uh, but, but yes, it is in the midst of it when you feel like you're in the middle of the crucible and you're being shaped and torn apart and rebuilt, it, it can be very, very painful. Yes, yes. Well, I would, I can't, I would love to hear more about that as our conversation goes on. I'd like to start though with the more of the beginning and just would love to hear some of your ethnic journey as a Chinese American. So go for it. Yeah, so my parents immigrated from Hong Kong to California just a few months before I was born, my, I have one older sister. She was born in Hong Kong. And, and so I have lived in the U.S. my whole life, but it certainly was very much shaped by my parents' immigrant experience, by their very close ties to Hong Kong. And they both went to university in Taiwan, so they have close connections to Taiwan as well. And, um, and I actually grew up in a Cantonese-speaking Chinese immigrant church. Uh, so, so that was a huge part of my childhood as well. And so I was always around other Chinese immigrants. And, um, and 
I grew up in a town in the Bay Area called Danville, which is actually, I think, fairly different now from when I was there as a kid. But when when I was young, um, it was really not very diverse. And so the elementary school I went to was maybe, I don't know, 98, 99% white mm-hmm. and, and the high school as well. And, and so um, that was definitely challenging. I think as a young kid, not understanding what ethnicity and culture were, and I think having immigrant parents who didn't know how to help me navigate that, mm. um, there was, I just always had this sense of, I am really odd. There is something really strange about me and I can't fit in with these other kids and I have no idea why. And I could never mm. quite put my finger on it. You know, they would talk about things that I didn't know what they were talking about, like foods and TV shows and places they had visited. And, um, you know, and it's kind of the stereotypical experience of like, I'd bring Chinese leftovers for lunch and everyone would think it was the craziest thing ever that I was eating, you know, rice and um, tofu instead of a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And, um, and so I think I internalized that as, you know, it's me, there's something wrong with me because mm-hmm. I had so much trouble making friends and connecting with others. And then um, for uh, various reasons, I ended up at a middle school that was across town and was in a part of Danville that actually was much more diverse and had a lot more Asians. <laughs> and, and suddenly I had this huge group of Asian friends and, um, and not, not just Asian friends. There were, it was actually a fairly diverse group, but it, that was so helpful for me, I think, in my kind of preteen, early teen years of recognizing like, okay, it's not that there is something terribly inherently wrong with me. But uh, there was just something about the cultural environment of that school that made it really difficult for me to connect with people. And I'm uh, having a really different experience in middle school. So while most people hated middle school, I loved middle school. It was amazing Mm -hmm. Um, because for the first time in my life, I had this huge group of friends and I finally felt like I belonged somewhere. And then um, high school, I went back to a high school that again, was almost all white and again, had a really, really hard time. Uh, and, and then I, I went to college at a college campus that was, I think, 30, 40% Asian. Um, so again, that ended up being a very, very positive experience. And it, um, it helped reinforce, um, that, that it wasn't, a bad thing that I was different from from a lot of people around me or from the majority of culture, but but that there was a lot of beauty and goodness in being Asian American, and there was a lot to be celebrated. And um, so so I think um, having been in both contexts now, also having lived in mainland China and Hong Kong and Kenya, um, I just yeah, it, it has um, very much. Um, affected my understanding of how how essential um, those cultural elements are to who I am, how much they've affected my personality and how I see the world and how I interact with other people, and and then I'm okay with that. That's just that's just who I am, and um, and it's it's something to to be at peace about. Mm, wow, I'm curious how you experienced living, you know, having had that growing up experience with you know, majority white and then a group of Asians and then again, kind of the back and forth. But what was that like for you um, moving to mainland China to, you know, living in a place that was completely Eastern, you know, so that, you know, culturally and otherwise, like, what was that like for you? Yeah. I mean, it was, it was a real shock to the system because I think growing up uh, in, in the U.S., I had always had this sense of like, gosh, I'm so Asian. I'm really Chinese. And then I moved to China and I realized I'm not Chinese. I'm totally not Chinese. I'm so American. And it it was stunning. Um, I think, I, I mean, I knew I had some sense of, okay, I know I'm not going to be exactly like the people there. My family speaks Cantonese and not Mandarin. So I knew that that was going to be a struggle to communicate with people there. Um, but there, the level to which I was different from from people living in mainland China was was really stunning to me. You know, our entire worldview and how we saw things and how we reacted to things, um, it just 
there was almost no overlap and it made it extraordinarily challenging. So my husband and I were there to, to work. And so we were in an office where, you know, there were a few expats, but it was majority Chinese nationals. Um, and so it was like, we were trying to learn about Chinese culture, but we were also trying to learn about Chinese business culture, which is its own thing mm-hmm. all at the same time. And we were really young at the time. We were just, you know, in our late twenties and, um, it it was really overwhelming to to recognize how different we were and yet to try to parse through that and understand where are these differences coming from? How do we bridge the gap? And I think it made it um, particularly challenging because I looked so much like everyone else. Mm-hmm. And so they would look at me and make assumptions about, well, I mean, you already get it. You know where I'm coming from. You know how I think. And I totally didn't. And, mm-hmm. um, and whereas, you know, my, my husband is white. And so they would look at him and be like, okay, you're a foreigner. You don't get it. That's fine. Mm. Um, and then I think because they were looking at me with the expectation of, you should know, you should know your mm-hmm. language. You should know your culture. You should know, you know, these, uh, like I would have people throw out names of Chinese poets and Chinese philosophers and mm. um, you know major <laughs> figures from Chinese culture, and they would be horribly offended when I didn't know who they were talking about. Um, and I mean, basically, I was just an affront. Just my very existence was an affront to many of the people I met in China because they felt like I had abandoned my culture and my heritage. Um, and and they got extraordinarily frustrated with me. Mm. Um, and that was hard. That was hard mm-hmm. to feel like, oh, I, I had trouble finding a place of belonging in the U.S. And I think I am having even more trouble with this mm-hmm. China. And so there, there was a sense of, I don't know if I belong anywhere. Wow. Yeah. That makes a lot. I, I'm identifying with you. I had grown, I grew up in Colorado and then moved to Hong Kong uh, during my senior year of high school. And, you know, growing up with mostly white and then finally being with all Chinese, but again, not understanding the language because it was Cantonese, you know, all of that, but that feeling lost, like here I am surrounded, but I think in English and I dream in English and my values have been shaped by Western culture and Western thinking and the school, the way that we're taught in our school system is very linear and Greek and, you know, all of those things. So I could definitely... I so hear what you're saying, you know, that I, I, um, I've heard the term third culture kid where um, expats or missionaries who are raised in a foreign country um, don't feel like they fit in in either world. And I, I think that description is often one that as Asian Americans, we can be fifth or sixth generation Chinese helped build the railroads and still feel othered. Right. So, yeah, definitely. Well, in your experience, you know, having had, you know, just the, the blend that you had growing up and even now, just what you described is kind of being at peace with this is who I am and I, I, I bring me wherever I go. What are parts of your ethnic heritage that you feel proud of? One thing I found is that um, I think there is a lot well, so so I think this is kind of nuanced, but um, most of the world, I, I believe it's 75% of the world's population, whether you're from Asia, Africa, Latin America, uh, come we come from honor-shame cultures. And and I, I grew up with a lot of shame, which is the not-so-great part of it. But on the flip side, uh, I have come to really appreciate that sense of honor that that we bestow upon one another you know to honor your elders to honor your relatives to honor authority figures to honor the stranger um i when i was a kid my parents were always drilling in me the importance of you know you have to call these people by their title you have to call these people by their title even if it was someone i had never met before i had no idea who they were they always had some sort of title that i had to name and it was kind of annoying as a kid, but, but now as an adult, I really appreciate that, you know, that, that, that even if it's someone I'm meeting for the first time by, by calling them by their title, I am bestowing respect um, and reverence on them. And, and I am saying that, 
you know, you are somehow connected to me. So mm-hmm. even if you are my great aunt twice removed on my dad's side, um, and I've never met you before, you're still connected to me. You are still family to me. And, mm-hmm. and that sense of connection that even no matter how distant we are, we're still really connected. I think that that's something that's really beautiful and I really mm-hmm. appreciate. Oh yeah. I so agree with that. Well, I would love to, um, kind of explore, you were talking about kind of more the painful parts too, with growing up in a shame-based culture. Can you unpack that a little bit and maybe give some examples of what that was like? Uh, you know, to be honest, so I, I grew up in a Christian household and, um, I think the two got conflated sometimes, which, uh, in many ways made it a lot messier and more painful. So the, um, the conversations that you hear about sin in, um, in church got, um, got, overlaid on top of, you know, these are all the things that you need to do to be a good Chinese girl. Mm-hmm. And, and so it kind of carried this extra weight of, you know, if you are not getting good grades <laughs> or if you are not calling people by their appropriate titles, or if you, um, you know, are not speaking in the right way or eating the right food, there was this, this sense of not only are you not living up to our expectations culturally, but, but they, you know, you you may be crossing the line into sin as well. And Mm so I I grew up with this sort of constant fear that I was always doing something wrong. Um, Because yeah, I could never quite be Chinese enough for my parents. That's sort of just the reality of what it is when you're growing up in a different country and culture. And, um, and you know, I could never quite live up to the expectations of, of my many dozens of aunties and uncles who are in the Chinese church with us. Not, you know, not blood-related aunties and uncles, mm-hmm. but, uh, but church aunties and uncles. And, um, and there were just such high standards placed on, on me, you know, academically, um, but also morally and ethically that it, it just, it was a lot for a little kid to carry. And I think it's not unusual for, um, for Asian Americans to feel that. And, um, but yeah, I think, I think kids respond differently. And for me, I felt that way. I carried it and I tried so hard to live up to those expectations year after year after year. And I, even now, you know, I, I just turned 40 and I'm still a recovering perfectionist. Mm. Um, it's just really hard to shake those, those habits and to shake that sense of feeling like you're always not good enough. Mm. Yes, yes. Have you found anything helpful in that journey of just, you know, learning to shake that? Because I think what you're identifying is something we... we do experience for all the reasons that you just described, you know, there's really this, um, the sense of collective that you talked about where our, our performance reflects on everyone. And so not only if if we fail individually, we fail the entire family. We fail the family name. Right. Yeah. It's a lot of pressure. It's a lot of pressure. Um, Therapy, therapy is definitely been helpful. Um, but I would say also, you know, so so marrying a white guy, not that this needs to be everyone's path, but but it has been helpful for me in terms of, you know, my my husband doesn't live with any of that. And and to have a model of somebody who is right there in front of me every day and to see the the freedom and the risk taking that he is able to live with. Mm-hmm. Um, I, yeah, it has given me a lot more of a sense of freedom and, and, you know, being married to him, he's kind of pulled me along into a lot of these adventures and risks and doing things differently and bucking expectations. And, and it terrified me at first, but sort of the more you do it, the more you're like, Oh, you know, this is, this is okay. And, and nobody's going to hate me and I am not bringing shame on my family. And, um, you know, the, the Chang name is still living on. It hasn't been buried in the dirt or anything. Um, and, but then I would say actually the most profound experience was my time in China, which, you know, I think as, um, uncomfortable a truth 
as it is, the reality is that we learn the most, we grow the most, we're shaped the most by the hardest experiences in our lives. And so when I was in China, um, to a far greater degree than I ever experienced with my family. Because my family, you know, they put a lot of pressure on me, but I also knew that they really loved me. There was a lot of affection in my family. Um, and so that, that helped balance out some of, the, some of the demands that were put on me. But in China, you know, China is a big country and we were living in a huge city of like 15 million people. And so there were a lot of people that I was encountering who were constantly telling me, that I was not good enough. And, you know, these were strangers who had absolutely no qualms <laughs> telling me how horrible my Mandarin was, how inappropriate my behavior was, how, you know, how angry they were at me for not knowing how to order food or not knowing how to fill out this form or not knowing how to, um, you know, I think just modern Chinese culture, I don't think this is Chinese culture in general, I think just modern Chinese culture, given recent um the recent like really difficult history that that has taken place in China has has shaped it to be um, a culture that is not particularly kind mm -hmm. and um, and it's very highly critical at least right now and and so yeah so I was getting yelled at you know a few times a day every single day that wow. I lived in China and it could come from any possible direction, you know, taxi drivers, um, people working in restaurants and in stores for even just random people on the street, honestly, like random people on the street would just start yelling at me, um, usually because they saw me with a white guy and I got them really incensed. And, um, <clears throat> and it was like, and I tried so hard. So that was when my perfectionism instincts just kicked into high gear. And I, I took Mandarin lessons. I, um, I tried my best to be like so polite and so patient and so kind. And I smiled at everyone and I took every insult that they gave me without fighting back. And I, um, and, but no matter what I did, no matter how hard I tried, things did not get better. And, um, and it eventually it sent me into this really um, dark season of depression where I couldn't even really leave our apartment anymore because the entire world outside our apartment felt threatening to me. It felt unsafe. And, and the only safe place was just to stay home, curled up in bed under the blankets. And, um, and so that was when it became very starkly clear to me of I can't, I'm going to kill myself trying to please everybody around me. And it's not going to make a bit of difference. And, um, and, and also recognizing like these people don't know me and yet I care so deeply about what they think of me. And that is just unsustainable. I cannot live trying to please the 15 million people who live in the city with me, who know nothing about me, who have tons of assumptions about who I am. And, and so it's sort of, um, I think the whole system that had worked really well for me in my family, in school, right? When you're a perfectionist and you're a people pleaser, um, you get really rewarded when you're in school, when you're in the workplace, people love you. And this was maybe the first place I had been to where it, the, the system completely broke down. And, and so I think it kind of, the whole thing just fell apart around me. And, and I realized I can't do this. I can't do this anymore. I can't do it in China, but I also can't do it even in the US when it works well for me um, because it takes so much out of me. It requires me to um, be someone that I'm actually not. And, um, and I use so much of my energy trying to be the person other people want me to be that I'm not actually bringing my full authentic self to them, which, um, which I think is a big loss, certainly for me. Sure. Um, and, and I think, I think for those around me as well. And, and so, uh, yeah, it was by necessity that, that I, couldn't do that anymore um, by necessity because I could barely get out of bed <laughs> anymore. Yeah. So I certainly couldn't keep up appearances of, of being this perfect, good person. Um, and, and because the, it just wasn't working for me anymore. And, but it was a long process. I mean, I would say it was something like three to five years for me to come out, fully come out of that depression to fully recover from our experience in China 
lot of therapy helped, a lot of journaling helped, a lot of writing. That's actually a big part of why I started writing because that was very healing for me. And, and it really helped me process a lot of these challenging experiences and, and to find a new way of being and to completely change how you operate. Um, that's not an easy task for anybody. So yeah. it took me quite a number of years to, 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 rebuild that and um and to find find a different way to operate that was much more balanced and much more healthy but mm-hmm. you know those are things that i grew up with and they're still there and they still come up every once in a while and so i think it's just going to be a lifelong challenge for me to to figure out you know how do i balance trying to um trying to honor those around mm-hmm. me trying to you know, um, be kind and generous and, and give to others in a way that's meaningful to them, but, but also, you know, finding ways to take care of myself and, and not overdo it and, and still be true to who I am. Mm. Wow, Dorcas, those are hard-won truths that uh, they really, really matter. And I, I'm thinking about a statistic that was shared with me um, I probably have to go back and make sure that I'm quoting it correctly, but one of the highest suicide rates um, in the United States among Asian American women from 18 to 34. Um, and what you're describing, I think that pressure is something that we do live with um, that's from within and without. Um, and so I just appreciate you sharing that. And I appreciate your shout out to therapy. I have a paid friend as well. because (laughs) I think, you know, learning to navigate these emotions and especially growing up for me in a, in a household where this was not part of the conversation at all feelings and, um, you know, struggle, like those are just, there's not a space to necessarily learn to identify what was going on. It's just perform, work hard, work harder, and right. um, and and well-meaning. I would say, you know, yeah, I think that absolutely in the mindset of the parents, and even me now as a parent, you know, it's like I want what's best for my kids. I really do. So that typically the 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 starting point is one that really wants, you know, what's what they what they understand as what's best for the kid. But, you know, there's just not a place to, to learn to process and to identify and to yeah. feel. Um, so I just really, really appreciate you sharing that, Dorcas. Yeah, thanks. Well, and if I could also add, I think another really helpful thing about spending time overseas, I would say this is true of my experience in China and Hong Kong, but also of being in Kenya, was that it really helped me empathize with my parents' immigrant experience. And um, and so I think that's something that if, you know, if, if any of your listeners are children of immigrants and if you have the opportunity to spend extended time overseas, it's, it is extraordinarily humbling to mm. go to a new place and have to start all over again and you have no friends and you have no idea what's going on and you don't sure. know how, you know, just the most basic of things of how do I pay my electricity bill or how do I mail a letter or, um, you know, how do I find the nearest, I don't know, bathroom or something, right? It's like those very, very basic things suddenly become extraordinarily difficult. Yes. And um, it has made me grow in respect so much for people who choose to immigrate to other countries, no matter where they're from or where they're going. It Mm -hmm. takes so much courage and resilience and it helped me recognize how much my parents were dealing with when I was a mm. kid. And, you know, it's like, yeah, they had me to raise. They had my sister to raise. And they were trying to navigate this entirely new place and culture and language. Um, and they, you know, already had the advantage of we had some relatives living in the area already. So they had some of a support network. Um, but even then, you know, how, how hard it must have been. And so they were doing their best, you know, they, mm-hmm. and they, they didn't necessarily have their full capacity to just focus on parenting because there was so much else going on in their lives. And, um, and so I just, I, um, I appreciate having that perspective because it's, um, it's made me feel so much more connected to my parents' experience. Mm. Oh, that's such a great word. Yeah. And so 
<laughs> yeah, it's so helpful. I think that the balance of being able to be honest with our own challenges, but understanding from their perspective is uh, also part of the healing too. So I, yeah, that was so great. Well, I, I wish we could have um, 15 million hours <laughs> to talk, to be able to, um, to glean from you from, from all of your experiences, um, you know, in uh, nonprofit world and everywhere, just leadership principles that, you know, you've been a part of with your husband personally, just, I, so I don't know if you're able to, but could you synthesize maybe a few, <laughs> um, a couple um, guiding principles of leadership or some of your North stars perhaps when it comes to um, leadership principles? Yeah, I think, you know, coming from an American mindset, I think the stereotypical leader is somebody who is out front and confident and who talks a lot and who sounds really good and stands really tall. And, um, and there is nothing wrong with those things. And yet um, I, I think I, um, there's some, some business, I, I do quite a bit of business writing. And so there's some business research that's been done that I think the, the CEOs that um, actually are, the most successful, who end up um, growing their businesses the most, who end up retaining the most staff, uh, who who are able to stay in their positions for longer periods of time, those actually tend to be people who have what we would consider more introverted qualities, um, which is that they listen well, they empathize well, um, and, and they kind of like what we were talking about earlier, they create space for other people to be empowered, to, to have their own voice to speak up. And so they're not necessarily, I mean, they, they do have to be upfront in, in a way you know, it's sort of unavoidable when, when you're in a position of leadership, but, but they're not the ones taking center stage, maybe even most of the time, you know, that they, they are sort of just setting the stage for yeah. other people to be able to um, step up, to step into their gifts, to step into their own leadership. And I think that so much to me is what I see um, positive, effective leadership as being is that it's, um, it's not about you. It's about the people around you. And it's about um, how do I help them flourish? And, and when the people around you are flourishing, then the entire team, and if you're in an organization, I think then the entire organization benefits from, um, from that shared sense of flourishing, of empowerment, of people being able to bring their best selves mm. to the table and contributing that. Um, and so that's something that I, I feel like I've really seen over the years and, um, and it's something my husband does really well, which I really um, appreciate. I think also we have had the great privilege of working with people from many different countries and cultures and as well as from very many different economic levels. So um, my, my husband's company creates solar-powered products for families that don't have access to reliable electricity. So because of the work that my, my husband does, we also have the opportunity to interact a lot with families who come from what is called the base of the pyramid. And so these are the lowest income families in the world. So maybe they're making a dollar a day, $2 a day, at most $5 a day. For the most part, they're, they're living day to day, subsistence living, just barely making it, trying to um, support themselves and their families trying to keep themselves alive. And, and so we have spent quite a bit of time out in the field going to villages, meeting with these families in, in Africa, in Asia primarily. And, um, and then because of our background, so we both attended Stanford. My husband also went to Stanford for business school. Um, because of uh, the, the reach of his business, we have had the great privilege of stepping into some circles that, that I would say are pretty, pretty up there, you know. So, so we had the chance to attend the World Economic Forum a couple of years ago where you're just, you know, um, hobnobbing with the very... Um, the most elite people in the world in terms of the top CEOs and government leaders and presidents. And, um, you know, I was in a workshop and ended up sitting next to um, 
royalty and it, it just, you know, so it was, um, she was a princess and I was like, holy moly, <laughs> how am I here sitting next to a princess, <laughs> like just in a regular workshop, you know, and, um, yeah, you just don't, we don't see princesses in Silicon Valley. So um, <laughs> it was quite an experience. Um, and and yet what I have learned from that is that everybody is just human. I mean, I know it sounds, it might sound a little bit cliche, but, but it has, I think, been one of the most profound truths that I've experienced in the last few years is that when you step into a village and you step into somebody's like small little one room home, Mm-hmm. They just want to be treated with respect and kindness and they want to be seen not for their surroundings, not for who you think they are, but who they really are. And it's the wow. same thing. When we were at the World Economic Forum, there was this sense of, okay, maybe I'm a billionaire or maybe I you know, run this gigantic country or this huge, you know, growing multinational business, but I am really just a person. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that is something that we fail to do so often is that we come to people with this sense of, I already know who you are, or I think I know who you are, or surely you're this way because other people who are, who fit your category are also this way. Um, and, and I think that that just, so many barriers between us from the first moment you meet. And, and same thing when you go into a new culture. You know, I for sure have not mastered mainland Chinese culture or Hong Kong culture or Kenyan culture. But I feel like if I'm able to go in with the attitude of, I don't know who you are, you know, as a starting point of, I, I'm not going to pretend to know anything about you. I am willing to start from just zero with you and let you fill in the blanks for me. Please, you be the one to teach me. Who are you? Where did you come from? How do you see the world? And what can I learn from you? I think that that learning posture is so helpful. Um, And it has, I have found, been one of the very best ways to break the ice in any context, whether you're hobnobbing with the super rich or in a village or no matter what culture you're in, if you come to someone with the desire to learn from them, and there is something to be learned from every single person that we meet, um, that, that, that does so much for building that sense of trust and rapport. And, um, and I think it, it sets a really strong foundation for, you know, where could this relationship go next? And there are so many more possibilities when, when you are open to wherever it could take you rather than, than trying to come in and impo- impose our preconceived notions of, of what we think, you know, this relationship will be. Oh, that's pure gold. Like I said, I wish I had 15 billion hours. <laughs> hearing from you. This is so fantastic. Well, I would love for you to share with our listeners a little bit about your book because um, you have written a book that talks about entrepreneurship and marriage. And can you expound and describe it? And we'll definitely link up all of this in the show notes on the website and links to your book and all that. But just give us an idea of a taste of what the book is about. Sure. So my book is called Start, Love, Repeat, How to Stay in Love with Your Entrepreneur in a Crazy Startup World. And basically the, the subtitle is tells you what it is. It's, it's how to survive marriage to an entrepreneur. So in addition to all of these interesting cross-cultural experiences that my husband and I have had, um, we have also very much been on the entrepreneurial journey uh, pretty much from the day we were married. And so it's been nearly 14 years of him pursuing this business that I mentioned earlier called Delight. And even before that, he had a few other smaller businesses that he had worked on. And I, I mean, so I should say from the start that I have the greatest respect for entrepreneurs. It is an incredibly hard road to start something from nothing, to build up an entire organization, to try to come up with a new idea, a service, a product that hasn't been done before, or to radically improve upon something. We absolutely need people with this kind of creative energy and this desire to make a huge impact in in our world and in the way we live. Um, but there there is also a cost to that, and I think that's the side of entrepreneurship that very rarely gets talked about, which is um, which is the personal cost. So entrepreneurs themselves 
actually, you know, so you mentioned um, rates of suicide among Asian American women before. Entrepreneurs struggle with very high rates of depression, um, anxiety, mental illness. There have definitely been some fairly high profile suicides among the entrepreneurial mm. community. And um, also when, when we're talking about marriage and family, there are higher rates of divorce and infidelity among entrepreneurs and their spouses than the general population. And so much of it is just the, the level of stress. It's the uncertainty that comes with the entrepreneurial journey. Like you don't know if you're going to get a paycheck next week, or you don't know if this deal is going to go through or not. Um, I mean, the most, most startups are kind of living on the knife's edge for years for, I think it takes mm-hmm. at least seven years to really establish a stable company. And, and so that is a really long time to be living at this place of, I have no idea if we're going to, you know, explode in a good way today, or if the company's going to die. And, um, and that's a lot, a lot of pressure to live under and spouses and significant others and their kids, they get pulled into that pressure as well. Right. So there's certainly the financial issues. A lot of entrepreneurs move a lot. Um, there is just the general instability. They also, entrepreneurs also work a lot. Mm-hmm. So they just may not be very available to their families. And, um, and so I, you know, having lived through this and still living through it, I, it's not that I wrote a book and figured it all out, but um, there, I, I came to this point of there has to be a better way to do things because we want entrepreneurs to keep creating and innovating and doing what they do, but we also don't want them to have to lose their families and their own health and well-being in the process. Mm-hmm. And, and so, so that's where this book came from of like, let's find a way to do both, to, mm-hmm. um, to be able to build a thriving business and to do what you're passionate about, what you love. But, but also, you know, let's make sure that you, the people around you are still there, <laughs> you know, five years down that's, the road and, yeah. and that you still find a way to, to um, to love one another well and to be present to one another and not to miss out on on the other things in life because I think ultimately entrepreneurs are much more successful in their work when they have a really strong support network which mostly comes from their family but can also be a friend friendship community um, and and when they have when they take better care of themselves like in any career right the the better you take care of yourself the more you can sustain your work and you're not going to burn out after two years mm-hmm. or three years or whatever um, so so the book is just full of um, well it, it's full of stories about Ned and me, so Ned's my husband, um, and our personal experience. So it's about a third memoir. It's a third other people's stories. So I had the chance to interview more than 70 other entrepreneurial couples to learn from them and to hear about what's been really hard for them, what's worked really well for them. And um, as well as talking to marriage family therapists, executive coaches, investors, um, just a lot of people who are kind of in the orbit of the startup world and, and learning from them of what are the best practices that couples can pursue to, um, to try to find that sense of, of balance of, of really investing in family while also pursuing the work that you mm. love. Oh, sounds fantastic. And I can't wait for listeners to get a hold of your book and be able to glean from your experience and it to me I, I think what strikes me is I'm hearing about um, you and your husband what you've been about and even what you're offering through your writing that there's really this um, spirit of wanting to um, help uh, help society thrive you know I really sense that as really a heartbeat of the the Chang Tozen family, you know, it's like this. Yes. It's like, how do we help? How do we help people thrive and marriages thrive, which results in people thriving and businesses thrive, so that people can thrive. That there are ways that we can um, create products um, that will better the livelihood of people all around. So I love that that's, there's a consistency that I hear and see. And then in that, there's a real honesty of what you bring as far as the struggle and the, the, the genuine challenge that comes with um, being living in tension and stress and um, challenge. So it's just, uh, uh, gosh, 
you are gold. I just <laughs> thank you. Cool. You are too kind. <laughs> oh my goodness. So, well, how can people find you and connect with you? Yes, there are many ways to connect with me. You can find me on my website, which is www.changtosen.com. Uh, I'm on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. Um, pretty easy to find. That's one of the benefits of having a very unusual name is there's only one of me in the world. So you could just look me up and there I am. There's <laughs> not going to be anyone else. <laughs> um, and, and so I, yeah, please get in touch. I love, I love hearing from people and my book is available on Amazon and in bookstores and, and hopefully wherever you buy your books, um, you should find it there. That's fantastic. Well, we'll definitely link that up in the show notes in all of your socials and the places people can find you. I think, uh, I think our conversation and your your sharing today is really going to benefit so many women um, in different seasons, uh, whether it be hard seasons or, um, you know, just thinking through the. I think what I've really taken away from our time is just that there's a there's a we live in an instant society where we get frustrated when things don't download really quick you know like what's wrong with this website it's not instantaneous and what you've been describing is more of a a long haul like rooted type of um long haul standing like a it's the it's the difference between a weed and a tree you know that it really the the root system takes time and those lessons are learned often in the hardest times, like you mentioned. So it's just been so rich to talk with you and learn from you. So thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Vivian. This has been such a wonderful conversation. And I'm so glad that we are having these conversations um, and and highlighting the the experience of of Asian American women and um, in all its beauty and diversity and hardship. And, um, but I love, I love that sense of camaraderie and community and being able to learn from one another. So thank you for creating this space. Well, glad to have you and I can't wait to see you for real. (laughs) Yes. I look forward to it one day. We will make it happen. We'll make it happen. Well, thanks for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you for joining us this week on Some Days Here. If you've liked what you've heard, please take a moment and subscribe to the show so that each new episode automatically downloads to your device every week. And thank you for sharing this podcast with your friends. We would love for you to rate and review the show so that others can find out about us. A special thank you to the brilliant team that makes Some Days Here possible. The Someday is Here logo is designed by Jocelyn Chung. The original music is by Joseph Patrick with Passion Net Productions. Show notes on the website are by Vicki Pham. The sound engineer is Aaron Kretzman. The director of design and website designer is Kenny Wong. And the executive producer is Chantelle Reynolds. Have a great week. And we look forward to you joining us again for another episode of Someday is here.